Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we've got news about the Taipei Film Festival winners, Bad Genius winning the New York Asian Film Festival competition, Derek Walks Wukong getting secretly leaked online, and Wanda and Le Echo are in trouble in China. Plus, we've got film reviews for Our Time Will Come and Spider-Man Homecoming. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and coming from his news desk in a drenched and wet Hong Kong is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. Hi, everybody. Hello, sir. Are you uh, toweling yourself off as we speak? Yeah, man. I mean, so I don't know if people outside of Hong Kong have heard. I mean, if you're in Hong Kong, you're living it, so you don't really have to hear about it. But we'll be getting hit by a, a couple of days of torrential rain. Um, I actually thought that Hong Kong Island was going to sink yesterday. Uh, not even Andy Lau could save us from that crisis. Mm. But yeah, uh, things have dried. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you're here. I got the dehumidifier on in the background. I've been doing that for the last couple of days because it's just so damn humid here. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I, I'm, you know, as a last resort, I guess you guys have that arc over in, where is that, in the land tower somewhere? Uh, the Mawan under the bridge, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that one actually floats, Paul. I think the museum inside is too heavy and might take up too much room for one of every animal, so it might yeah. be not. Well, I guess you better start building, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope you do stay dry and uh, hope that all our friends over there in the friggin' harbor, harbor stay as safe as they possibly can. It's raining here as, you know, as, as it tends to do this time of year. We are, I guess, just a couple days off from smack dab in the middle of the summer, if my calendar calculations are correct. And uh, I, for one, am looking forward to getting back into the fall for sure because um, it is really hot over here these days. But uh, that being said, uh, we're not here to talk about the weather or the rain. We are here to talk about movies and movie news. So let me throw it back over to my good friend, Mr. Ma, with this week's news. Here at the news desk, well, we were supposed to record last week, um, just as I had come back from uh, Taipei Film Festival. But uh, unfortunately, I picked up a bit of a flu and I uh, was able, wasn't able to record last week. So uh, apologies for that. Uh, but so now, now we can talk about the winners of the festival. Um, so the Taipei Film Festival has uh, an award ceremony every year called the Taipei Film Awards. They put in 40 films uh, into four different categories, uh, best narrative feature, best documentary, best short, and best animated film. And the top film out of those 40 films wins uh, the so-called Taipei Film Award Grand Prize. And that comes with a million new Taiwan dollar cash prize. Uh, now, all 40 films in the in that um, award are Taiwanese film, which is very cool if you think about it. I mean, a film festival that's really dedicated to, to rewarding uh, local films. 
and purely local films. Uh, we don't really have much of that in Hong Kong anymore, right? Except for the Hong Kong Film Awards. Um, so uh, this year's winners, uh, it's a pretty interesting list. Um, the Great Buddha Plus, which is the which is the opening film of this year's festival, um, won the Best Narrative Feature Award as well as the Grand Prize. Uh, it's a black and white film uh, produced by um, Chung Mong Hong, who did uh, the Taiwan comedy Godspeed last year, dark comedy Godspeed. Um, this is the I think fictional directorial debut of director Huan Xin Yao, and it's a black and white drama starring Leon Dai. Uh, it's about a man whose uh, dashboard camera accidentally captures um, I think something sinister, and he gets in trouble for it, uh, which sounds like a real interesting film. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to catch it. It was one of the hottest tickets of this year's festival, so I wasn't able to get. Um, a ticket for it. Uh, best documentary went to Small Talk, which I have seen. Uh, it's a very powerful film about um, the a director, a documentary director, um, filming uh, her mother, who is actually a lesbian priestess. So the film it's about uh, not only about her her mother, but it's also about the relationship between the director and her mother. It's a very again, it's a very powerful film. I think it's one of the best films I've seen this year. And um, actually, when I was a, a jury member earlier, a couple months ago at the Chinese Visual Film Festival over at um, in London, uh, I we had well, me and the jury uh, had given the shorter version of this film called The Priestess Walks Alone. We gave it the grand prize and I think it deserved it. Um, best short film, even more interesting. It's a film called True Emotion Behind the Wall. It's a film directed by director uh, Chang So Chi. Uh, who actually is serving a three-year prison sentence in Taipei prison uh, for rape or sexual assault. Uh, and during his time in prison, he actually um, convinced the Taipei prison uh, authorities to let him make this 38-minute uh, short. It's completely shot in the prison with his fellow inmates, um, both in front and behind the camera. Um, and the film is about life in the prison uh it's not really based on his own stories based on other inmates story even though the actual inmates in the film aren't the 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 characters aren't the actual characters in the in in the real you know true story um and it's an incredibly interesting film um if we can you know deduct or or put aside the fact that director cheng so chi what he did and what he's convicted for if we can put that aside and just you know judge the film on its own merit it's a very interesting film and it gives um, us a very revealing look at how prison life is quite different in, in Taiwan. The film is actually online if you can find the Taipei Prison um, uh, Authority website. It's already on YouTube. Let me see if I can give uh, Paul the link later. Maybe you can put it on uh, the, the, the show notes. Uh, Best Animation went to a film called Stories About Him. Uh, it's, a, it's an animated short. Best Director went to a very rare choice, actually. It went to um, the director of Wild Tides, uh, Lu Po Shun. Uh, it's a very interesting choice because it's actually a short film. Um, and the jury has said that they wanted to give this prize to a young director. And they were very impressed by what this director was able to do in a very short amount of time. So they gave him the Best uh, Director Award. Um Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor, um, Cinematography, and Editing went to another Taiwan film called Missing Johnny, which was the other sort of major Taiwan premiere at this year's festival. Uh, I apologize, it didn't win the Editing Award. It actually, also, it actually won um, sorry, four awards. So it won Cinematography, Best New Talent, um, Best Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. Okay. Um, 
Best Actor went to Wu Kan Jiang for uh, White Ant, uh, a film that I saw last year, a local drama. Um, Yin Xin uh, won Best Actress for The Island That All Flow By. Uh, I think this is a film that was made for public television. Um, Best Supporting Actress went to another local uh, Taiwan premiere for a film named Cloudy Liu Yi Shan. This is the actress's name. Um, I haven't seen the film, but I've heard that it's quite uh, a dark experience. The Great Buddha Plus actually was the top winner. Um, it, in addition to Grand Prize, it also won Best Narrative Feature. It also won Best Editing, Best Music, and Best Art Design. So it's clearly the biggest winner this year. Um, and I really, really look forward to seeing this film. Um, the Audience Choice Award, which uh, is, is picked from the ballot of the uh, from the audience um, that collected from every screening. Uh, of course, I also participate in the, in the voting, but pretty my the films that I gave really good score for it and really get to the top five. Anyway, it went up, it went to a documentary called Condemned Practice Mode. Um, it's a documentary about I think a man who was wrongly convicted of murder, and it's a film about um, how the public um, perceive. People who who are not even proven guilty in the court of law, they're kind of judged by media reports. They're judged uh, based on media reports and how they are so quick to judgment based on, um, you know, not so clear evidence and how they're willing to sort of lay the blame on 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 whoever the, the press chooses to crucify, whether he is, you know, conflict uh, convicted in the court of law or not. It's a very interesting. It sounds like a very interesting film. Again, I wasn't able to get a ticket. For this film, um, the Taipei Film Festival has a very interesting um, uh, lineup, especially in the local documentary. For four years in a row, actually, doc, uh, the grand prize went to documentaries uh, at this festival, and um, it was only the last couple years when narrative films sort of made a comeback and and won the top prize. And I think the Taipei Film Festival has always been a very interesting choice in has made very interesting choices uh, in their programming. Uh, they've always been sort of a bit more I think artsy, they take more chances with their choices, unlike the Golden Horse Festival, which picks up more commercial films. And of course, because the the, the, the award um, picks takes so many um, uh, high profile films and the festival itself also picks up a lot of high profile films. So the Taipei Film Festival is almost like a more art house alternative, even though um, it does have very commercial films. For example, Enhui went to the festival this year with um, not only Our Time Will Come, but also she hosted a seminar following a screening of her um, uh, first film, I think the remastered version of her first film, Secret. Um, and I got to watch um, a remastered version of This is Spinal Tap, on a big screen for the first time. So so it's a very interesting, eclectic mix of films, and I highly recommend uh, anyone who, who is interested in this festival to to go, even though um, there is one problem, is that you can't buy tickets online, unlike the Golden Horse Festival. Uh, the Taipei Film Festival only sells its tickets through the nationwide I-Bond system, ticketing system, which is only available at kiosks at 7-Elevens across Taiwan. So you have to actually land in Taiwan first, Go to 7-Eleven, then buy your tickets there. So uh, unless you have a friend in Taiwan, it's actually very difficult to get tickets for um, popular films. So that is the only real one flaw of the festival. Otherwise, it's an excellent film festival and I think one of the best in the region. And and it's not is not um, what we call, what we what I say it's not really tainted yet because it's not really a popular festival for foreign for foreign visitors. So um, if you have a chance, uh, I highly recommend it. So Kevin, for somebody who's gonna 
you know, possibly drop in and do that. Um, are the kiosks bilingual, or do you not have to know how to read traditional Chinese to navigate them? You have, you have to read chi- Chinese. So you have to have someone who knows how to read Chinese. So I haven't tried. I didn't look at the machine long enough to look at the English to see if there's an English version. But if I remember correctly, um, there wasn't one. And the trouble with that was I was trying to buy a lot of tickets. And you can only do one transaction at a time on those machines. And the way it works is that the machine would print. I don't know if you've bought, gone to Japan or go to the Ghibli Museum and try to use those machines at the convenience stores. What they do is they print out, out, out a ticket and you have to pay at the cashier. But that ticket only is only good for 10 minutes. And we're trying to buy, you know, like more than 10 or 10 tickets at a time. And you have to input all those information for each film those earlier tickets that you bought actually expires, and that's what happened to me. I had to rebuy some of those tickets because they expired. So um, it's a bit of a pain, but once you get it going, once you have those tickets in your hand, it's all reserved seating, and the venues are great. Um, there are only three theaters or four theaters, I think, and they're all very close in proximity to each other, and the audience is, is amazingly well-behaved. Um, and yeah, it, it's just a it's just a really fantastic fe- film festival. You're serious about film going, and you're willing to to uh, sacrifice a couple of weekdays to to ch- uh, attend some uh, less to to you know take a chance on on some of these films. All right, excellent. Moving on to more film festival news, uh, I have some news about the New York Asian Film Festival. That's right. The New York Asian Film Festival wrapped up over the weekend. Um, I myself actually had two films that I subtitled that that played at the festival. That's Extraordinary Mission and Zombieology. Um, Enjoy yourself tonight. Um, Fortunately, neither film was in competition, so there's no real conflict of interest here. Anyway, um, the competition uh, winner uh, was uh, Thai film Bad Genius, which sounds like a fantastic film, by the way. Um, It's a heist film about uh, high school students who um, who essentially are trying, instead of trying to steal money, they're trying to steal test answers. So they can uh, standardize test answers so they can sell it to uh, richer and, and dumber students. It's, which is a, it sounds like a really great idea. And the film has been picking up a lot of good word of mouth. It was, um, I think, one of the, because the, the, I know, one or two of the programmers and i know that they were super enthusiastic about this film so i'm sure they're very happy that uh, the film actually uh, won the competition um meanwhile close-knit uh which i saw in udine is a japanese film about a young girl who moves in moves in um with her uncle and his transgendered uh girlfriend um uh, it's a fantastic film. The film actually won the top prize at Udine earlier this year, and it also won the Audience Award at this year's uh, NAF. Uh, so yeah, really, really great results all around, and apparently the, the festival did um, really well this year, and congratulations to the team if they're listening. Next piece of news, uh, I guess we're getting into more serious territory now. Uh, Derek Kwok's new film, Wukong, starring uh, Eddie Pang and, and Sean Yu, uh, opened last weekend in China, and it did very well at the box office. Um, but a uh, apparently a earlier um, a unfinished version of the film was leaked online bef- a week before the film's opening. Um, fortunately for the team, apparently it was actually a version that was unfinished, and I think it ran a bit longer than the actual final version. And uh, I think the even the music wasn't in there yet. Uh, so clearly, I think someone in the post production process either leaked the film or accidentally. 
got hacked or something like that and the film has somehow leaked on the internet um i think the team uh last i heard is that they're taking legal action uh i'm pretty sure because these these rough cuts i mean i've seen rough cuts of films that subtitle and and they're always heavily watermarked which you know the whole point is to stop you from leaking the film and i always delete my rough cuts when i'm done with them um so uh so don't ask me for a cut for a version of a copy of soccer killer all right i I really don't have um it's watermarked and and that and that's the easiest way for them to trace so for someone to so it's hard to imagine someone really dumb enough to go and leak a watermarked rough cut that is you know that can actually easily be traced um uh and leak it online so i can only assume that is an accident but uh fortunately the film did extremely well over the weekend and um so it, it seems like it didn't really leave much of a dent um but yeah, if you are in the film industry and you do receive these rough cuts, it's uh, this, this is a stark reminder to be very careful of what you get. Yeah, I mean, do you know much about the story? Because it's based on like an online novel or comic or something like that. It's a novel. Yeah, yes. and it's, um, as I understand it, the writer has taken a lot of liberties with the, 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 the story. It's supposedly a, a prequel Right. But in fact, if you've read the literature, there is no prequel to be told because the Monkey King's origin is all there in the book. So it's like this guy has created his own version of that somehow. Yes. I mean, we we, we reported about this film when it started production. Um, And I remember talk saying that this is going to be sort of a. Uh, a teen, a teen, a teen angst version of the story. Yeah. Apparently, the novel itself is there is no journey to the West in this version or in the novel it's very much about um sun wukong before all that stuff started um before he became uh, the monkey king um it's a pre-monkey king movie it's a sun wukong but before it became monkey king right but that's it um, that's actually in journey to the west i mean from the time he's created when he goes and he studies on the mountain to you know learn martial arts and and before he has the havoc in heaven that's already out there. So this guy has basically just come along and said, I'm going to write my own version. Right. I think that's what it is. I think yeah. he's actually writing his own version. And, and well, we're talking about Journey to the West. I'm talking about the, the core of the story, right, which right. is the whole, the whole thing about the quest. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The quest. And I think none of that's in the film. And it is essentially, uh, actually a lot of the um, novel fans of the novel are complaining about this version of the film because it, it took out so much from the novel. Um, so it seems like there's going to be even a simpler story. And what it seems like is that there is no real what we what we know to be about the you know I, I think it features some some characters from the uh, Journey to the West canon, but um, but uh, from what I can tell, it's really sort of its own. It happens to be a story about Sun Wukong, but not a Journey to the West adaptation. Mm. Um, so it it sounds interesting, but honestly, I'm so burnt out on anything we anything related to monkey king or sumu kong or journey to the west that i really am not that enthusiastic about this film i'm curious to see it just to see sort of uh, eddie pang's take on the character but for me it everything i've seen and read about up to this point it just kind of sounds like it's doing for uh you know journey to the west and the monkey king what twilight did for vampires so I don't know if I'm looking forward to it all that much, but uh, time will tell, and hopefully it'll you know get into my hands sooner rather than later. Well, it is playing in North American cinemas, but unfortunately, you know, I mean, I think we have to go back to that argument, which is 
you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not really playing in Florida, <laughs> unfortunately. That's so. True. Hopefully, you will get to see it soon. All right, last bit of news. Um, I I don't follow much financial news. Um, and the problem is I've been so busy the last couple of weeks. Um, I can reveal a little bit. I was working on a couple of subtitling projects and a full full length script translation. So. Um, and I just did another long, you know, translation work. So I haven't been following much, but the big story in China right now in terms of finances in the entertainment industry is that the government has reportedly, uh, well, two different companies, two different troubles. Reportedly, um, the Chinese government, uh, the Chinese finance regulators has blocked Wanda from making foreign acquisitions, which is a huge, huge deal because Wanda um, is their biggest, is sort of the biggest company, Chinese company right now that is that is buying up um, uh, different entities overseas. Uh, for example, AMC theaters and multiple, uh, you know, other firms in Hollywood. Um, uh, remember, they did also purchase Legendary East or Legendary, the the company behind a lot of big Hollywood films and. Apparently, last last I hear from or from Variety, because they're so obsessed with Wanda, uh, so they can't stop reporting about it, um, is that the government has stopped, has blocked the banks from making loans to Wanda uh, for foreign acquisitions. Um, so this is uh, sort of to block the expansion of Wanda. Wanda is, is the most ambitious firm out there in terms of uh, expanding beyond Chinese borders. Uh, but the government has been... Um, reportedly blocking a lot of these f- Chinese funds from going overseas in the last last half year or so, in the last year or so. So Wanda is not the only victim, but it just happens that Wanda is the most high profile victim because it is such a it, it is so so um, prolific in making these acquisitions. Meanwhile, La Echo. Uh, there's actually an ongoing saga. Uh, La Echo, who is behind, you know, La TV and uh, La Vision Pictures, and uh, they they're one of, they well they were I'm not sure if they still am um, one of the biggest video platforms, of course, in China. They have been in financial trouble for quite some time, um, and it's gotten worse in the last couple of months. Apparently, a lot of vendors are are haven't been paid. Um, and uh, they've just lost the rights to um, to 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 broadcast. I think uh, one of the the European uh, uh, football leagues. I think um, and just lost the rights. And of course, a couple years ago, um, La Echo actually made a big entry into Hong Kong, selling their boxes, selling their services. And apparently, a few of those services have now been blocked, and is now unsure what's going to happen to La Echo. It's, it's definitely their CEO, had, uh, their founder and CEO has just resigned. Um, and it's almost certain that La Echo is not going to make it for through the year. Um, and that that is unfortunate because this is subscri- uh, they have a lot of subscribers here in Hong Kong and I think perhaps overseas as well. But at least in China, uh, people who put their money in and put their faith uh, vendors who, who provide the services, provide the programming uh, to Love Echo and now being owed money. And, and the longer Echo is holding these money, the, the, the tougher it is, is going to be for them to, to sort of dig themselves out. So um, these are two major Chinese entertainment companies that are in very, very bad trouble. Uh, so it's quite a turbulent time right now in the, the finance sector of the entertainment industry in China. Yeah, I think this is indicative, too, of not just the troubles going on in finance, but especially things that are tied to media and entertainment or even um, things that really 
do a lot of business online. I mean, sort of related news. I remember reading, uh, I think sometime last week, they're talking now about how uh, China's taking steps to shut down all VPNs in the mainland, right? So you, none, they're, they're closing out all of the virtual private networks, meaning if you're not familiar with a VPN, it's a kind of software system that you can use to get beyond the Great Firewall. And it's used by, you know, citizens and businesses and things to try and get access to information outside of uh, China proper, the, you know, the China intranet, if you will. And, you know, I got, just got to imagine, I mean, I remember the using the La TV app. And La TV is basically a kind of, not really an Apple TV. They have, It's an Apple TV-like device, but I guess it's more along the lines of a Roku or Hulu kind of thing. Um, where they have some of their own programming and you can stream, you know, other programming as well. Um, and it's, it's it, you know, it's it's just, if you're in this industry right now, with the way that the government is acting um, very, very skittishly with regard to this kind of stuff, um, yeah, it just seems like you're in the wrong business. <laughs> Because well, it, it well Wanda Wanda is one thing. The government regulations is one thing, but La Echo, I think what they seem to have trouble is that it, you know it was a very ambitious company. They threw a lot of money into different investments, and and you know it was a, a matter of I think doing too much. I mean, at one point there was rumors that La, La Echo was going to make their own car because they kept trying to beat Apple and everything, right? I think they made their own phone. I think they had their own TV, which apparently has not been working out um, because I think you see those TVs on Groupon all the time. Um, <laughs> and, and and they were trying to make their own car. You know, it was it was a very ambitious company and it just didn't anticipate. Um, I mean, they kept anticipating that the, the video platform business or their film business would pick up or their finance business or whatever would pick up. And, and it just wasn't, and you know, and the Chinese economy hasn't been growing, uh, has slowed down a bit in the last year and a half, I think two years, and I, I and now we're seeing the effects hitting the uh, the entertainment giants. They, well, at least La Echo for now, but who knows? I mean, Chinese domestic films haven't been doing well in the past year, um, which must be hurting uh, Chinese film companies' pockets. Um, especially when they're going all in, uh, making a lot of these big budget blockbusters and, and not really making the money they were hoping to make, not breaking the records they're hoping to, to break. Um, and now it's sort of that that fallout from the slowdown of the Chinese economy is is starting to hit the uh, entertainment industry, at least in La Echo. And there have been a couple other news stories that I think you've touched on before and I've read about elsewhere too, talking about um, some of the problems that are starting to now come to the surface with things like, you know, actual reporting of numbers. And I think Hollywood's become a little bit disillusioned with the the partnerships. And I read something recently, too, um, that they're, they're now, and we're, we're now back into a sort of blackout period, right, um, in mainland China where they're cutting off foreign films for a period. Yeah, but they do that every year. They yeah. do it every year to, to, give, to give local films a leg up. They're also getting ready to release their big nationalist, what is it, founding of an army movie or something? Yes, yes. But the thing is, the blackout, I think I think there's some surprise that the, the local authorities held on to their blackout period this year. Because what happened last year was that when the box total box office was slowing down, um, the government actually allowed more foreign films in. They sort of un- unofficially expanded the quota a little bit. Um, well, it depends on what kind of films it was. I mean, I think they expanded the non-revenue 
I mean, sorry, the revenue sharing quota a little bit and allowed a few more foreign films in to try and lift that total box office up. And this year, box office hasn't exactly grown. So I thought that the government would loosen the blackout, um, usual blackout period to to let more foreign films day and date, uh, come in day and date and, and try and pick up that total box office. And I'm surprised that they are going ahead with this blackout period um, and, it's, and it's set to last until early September. I think September 1st when Dunkirk is supposed to come out and Spider-Man has also been pushed to September because of this this so-called blackout. I, I think the, the real lesson here, well, aside from the fact that Hollywood needs to stop treating China as its ATM, which is the thing I've been saying for like the last five years. I mean, every every era since I started writing film journalism, I've noticed this sort of attitude that Hollywood has towards China is that they're treating it as this ATM that they'll throw anything its way and and they think that Chinese people will show up and they can make money of or they try they keep trying to make money in China. But the thing is, they've been blindsided because Chinese people don't work by set rules. They're I mean the 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 positive is that they're always bendable they're always flexible um but the bad thing is they're so flexible that sort of some rules or some regulations or certain things that you expect them not do they end up doing to you anyway and it's so unpredictable and and it's it's um it's always interesting but it's also very exhausting to follow i mean oh here comes another regulation oh here comes another thing we didn't expect oh here comes another thing that blindsides another deal that they announced honestly any deal that I hear about China, China, and, and and some kind of foreign foreign partner, and if they say that they're not, it's not nothing's happening for another year. It, it, it there's a good seventy percent chance that it, it's not going to actually happen, just because of the way that you know China works. So it's it can be very exhausting to to follow this type of news. All right, that's going to wrap it up for our news this week. When we come back after this short musical break, Kevin's review of Anne Hoy's Our Time Will Come. And welcome back. For our e-screen review this week, Kevin takes a look at Anhoy's latest, Our Time Will Come. Yes, uh, and I was very excited to talk about this film, actually. I think we were supposed to record the day after I watched the film, and I was so excited to talk about the film. Because, yes, it's actually a very good film. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> um, <coughs> sorry. Our Time Will Come is the latest film from director En Hui. I don't think En Hui needs any introduction, and if she really needs an introduction to any of the listeners, you might be listening to the wrong show. Um, anyway, uh, this is her new film, and uh, the it's it's kind of a war story. It's set during the, um, the, the siege of Hong Kong, uh, when it was under occupation by Japanese forces. Um, anyway, the story is uh, 1942. Hong Kong is occupied by Japanese forces during World War II. Primary school teacher Fang Lan, uh, played by Zhou Xun, uh, lives with her mother, played by Dini Yip, um, in a rundown flat in Wan Chai. One day, uh, Lan is caught up in the Dongjiang guerrilla forces operation to pull intellectuals out of Hong Kong, essentially is to, to evacuate them out of 
Japanese-controlled Hong Kong and back to China. Um, and I guess what's worth noting is that the Dongjiang Gorilla is actually backed by the communists, which is possibly why the film even got made in the first place. Anyway, um, impressed by uh, Lan's calm, collected nature during the operation, uh, Gorilla Sniper Blackie Loud, played by Eddie Pang, decides to recruit Long for their underground operation. Um, so even though the package is selling a war film, and I have a feeling that this is how Enhui got the funding for the film. She probably told the company, I'm making this movie about Dong Zhang Gorillas. You know, it's great. It's about, it's a, it's kind of a war film. It's a spy film. But the, 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 I think Enhui gets the last laugh because this is ultimately an Enhui film through and through. Anyone who knows her style knows that an Enhui film is never like a commercial war film. She is not into that. She does not make propaganda films. She does not make war films. There are some war scenes. I mean, those are necessary. I mean, guns have to be fired. It is in some ways, you know, a commercial film in, in some ways. And you do have to sort of satisfy the expectations of some action scenes. You can't tell a fil- a story about the guerrilla forces in, 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 in Hong Kong without guns firing, right? But it's ultimately a film about life in Hong Kong under siege. It is... Um, it is a very realistic film. Um, Anhui shoots with a spectator's eyes. She essentially, you know, sets a camera from the side and she just watches things unfold. She's not a very uh, hands-on director when she's in her realism mode. That's not to say that it's a Ho Shan film, right? It's it's not like the camera's always set apart. It's just that she has a very she has a very strong dedication to realism, and and she observes everything real very calmly. Um, without much judgment, um, and it's always about those quiet moments. It's always about those everyday moments. Um, the film is very much about everyday life under these extraordinary circumstances, and there are a lot of scenes about everyday life in Hong Kong under this this life. For example, you see um, uh, how res- people try to ration their food. Um, you know, there's a constant worry by Long's mother, uh, played by Dini Yip, about rice. And in the first scene, um, she opens up and she, she's trying to get her tenant to stay in the house, to stay, to continue renting their, their part of their flat. And she decides to bring up these biscuits. And she actually, um, and I guess these are very nice, kind of not fancy, but, you know, you know, snacks like that is kind of a luxury at that time. So you see her put down free biscuits but then wait a minute she stops and she puts she takes one out because oh there's only two of them so this is all these little, little things that that sort of tell you what life is at the time there's a really really great wedding scene in the middle of the film that shows how wedding banquets are done uh at the time when you know you don't have a lot of rice and you can't afford to to give a lot of food to 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 banquet guests so um they can only give each like a bun or something and then the 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 restaurants would count the, the utensils they give out, they would say, oh, you got to give them back. This is the only good utensil we have. You know, you, if you steal these, you know, we can't even do any more banquets. You know, these very interesting little everyday things about life in Hong Kong. And even the spy operations that, that Lan's character goes through is very, very low tech. I mean, it's all, it's really ultimately just passing, for example, passing flyers uh, or just passing these little little folded notes uh, they hide in the pocket and they have to hop on a ferry and then they have to try and hire a bike and just go up to Yaomate or something. And it's, it's super, super low tech. And Enhui has the guts to do it to, to show how low tech these operations are, these so-called operations. You know, it's not really a, it's not like a John Le Carr film. I mean, John Le Carr adaptation, right? It's, it's not like these are super spies. These are everyday people 
just just trying to pass on flyers, right? Um, but imagine what a less confident director would be doing this material. I mean, imagine if like a commercial director trying to build up uh, tension and with these, you know, handheld cameras and and you know, um, spotlight. Everything takes place at night and all these people hiding the shadows and things like that. Anyway, doesn't do that. I mean, they're all just running around in the daytime trying to pass notes. Um, that's really what the so-called spy operation is, and. It's interesting because um, Anhui's last film, uh, The Golden Era, um, sort of sees her working very hard to use this gimmick. I don't know if you have... Have you seen Golden Era, Paul? Yes. Okay, so remember, you know, she has that, that, that real gimmick where you have the side characters all talk to the camera and, and try to narrate this person's life. And it's just that, that, that gimmick that didn't really work. But here, Anhui is just so dedicated to realism that she doesn't really use a lot of gimmicks here. Uh, it's all about... The, the, the art direction, it's all about setting a scene, it's all about setting an atmosphere, um, and, and you know, it's it's a moderately budget, budgeted co-production, so obviously there, there's enough money to to make fake Hong Kong. Um, the Wan Chai scenes, I think, are shot on the set, but she also, she, she also shot uh, quite a few scenes in New Territories, uh, where the gorillas were hiding, and she actually went, I think, to those areas, and shot in the woods there. Um, but, you know, it's just that the less gimmicks that she tries, the more masterful the film is. It's really amazing when Anhui doesn't look like she's putting any effort into it, how effortlessly great her films are. Um, and it just really worked well that way. Um, by the way, th- this film has a score by Joe Hisaishi, who, who a really famous Japanese composer, does a lot of the Studio Ghibli films, and the music is fantastic. But there's not a lot of music in here, just because it's such a realistic film. Uh, but whatever the music is there, it, it's pretty great. Um, the the film, I watched it here in Hong Kong, and the film is in Cantonese, but the three main stars, Joe Shun, Eddie Pang, and Wallace Huo, who is a, a Chinese actor, uh, all those three actors are all Mandarin speakers, so they are dubbed in the Cantonese version. But um, this is just such a quintessential Hong Kong story, and it just needs to be seen in Cantonese, because, I mean, this is, uh, it'd just be weird if, if you... I mean, there are... The Hong Kong version does have scenes in Mandarin because there are Mandarin speakers. For example, for example, the intellectuals, um, they're from China, so they do speak Mandarin. There's a scene where Sam Lee speaks incredibly bad Mandarin because he's a Hong Konger. And, and I think in the China version or in the Mandarin dub version, even he would be dubbed in perfect Mandarin. And it just wouldn't make sense that way. Um, so it really needs to be seen in Cantonese. And with that said, Joe Shun is good. Um, Eddie Peng's fine. I think he's a bit too young for the role. Um, he he's really cast for his looks, and I guess because he's playing sort of an action hero, so he, you you kind of need that physical presence. But I think he's a bit too young for the role. He needs to be. You need someone more commanding because your Blackie Lau is a, is a true character, and he's a very he's a legend in Hong Kong. Um, and and I think you need someone with a bit more commanding presence, and Eddie doesn't have that. But I can say that Dini Yip is amazing in this film. Dini Yip. Um, it's uh, she plays um, uh, a very you know everyday character, and Anhui put it put this very interestingly, and she said she focused this film on female characters during this era because uh, I mean in the time at that time women are the least you know are the sort of di- at a disadvantage in society, um, especially during that time. So so to really tell the story of everyday Hong Kong people, you need to tell the story from the point of view of a woman because they are not 
they weren't able to do extraordinary things. They weren't soldiers. They couldn't be soldiers. They can only do these small little tasks. And and by taking their point of view, you really do get a sense of how everyday life was during that period. Uh, and Dini Yip embodies that. That's sort of everyday Hong Konger. Um, she's the mother. She's a caring mother. Uh, and and she's just you know a, a small potato trying to make it, trying to survive in this period. And her little mannerisms and her her way of delivering the dialogue. It's an amazing performance, and I think it deserves a lot of um, award attention uh, when when the awards come along next March. Um, with that said, again, um, aside from the three main stars. Enhui really packs the cast of a lot of recognizable Hong Kong actors, for example, and a lot of them only have very brief uh, cameos. For example, Lena Paul only has one scene. Sam Lee, I just said, has a very brief scene in Bad Mandarin. Um, Leila Tong. Uh, Candy Lo shows up in like a, a cameo of zero lines. Um, Yun Kang Dan shows up in one scene. Tony Learn Learn Cafe shows up. Um, so the film. Um, has this sort of framing device. You hear uh, the older, the old, elder uh, member of the old Dongjiang Gorilla in modern day talking to a camera crew about those days, and they they cast. Um, they had Tony Learn play that role, so he shows up in the sort of these modern interview sequences, um, and just so many I can't even mention them all. Ivana Wong has a major supporting role as one of the one of the uh, the 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 woman who who take on this operation. This is like the Anhui Lunar New Year movie. Seriously, there's like there's so many stars, so many Cantonese speaking stars in this film. It, it, it is like an Enhui real cinema verite Lunar New Year movie. And she shoots all of them in sync sound. So you hear uh, um, these Cantonese speaking actors speaking Cantonese on set, just adds to the realism to it. And again, really in, reinforces why this film needs to be watched in Cantonese. Um, I love that this film has a show of community spirit, um, even though. Um, uh, even though a lot of the um, they show a lot of the uh, Japanese recruit a lot of locals to to act as you know serve as sort of checkpoint soldiers I guess that's the word uh, people who, who who check peers and people who check locals and there's a real community spirit there even even when they're pitted against each other for example if if someone is caught doing something if you have run into someone a Hong Konger at a checkpoint they would just say. You, you better hide that before a Japanese finds you or you're throw that away, get away. Like they're trying to protect one another. And and that real spirit um, of, of bonding, of, of united Hong Kongers, even when they're in different sides, um, it's really sort of makes you feel like this is a true Hong Kong film. No matter what era it takes place in, you, you feel like you're watching a Hong Kong story. Um, so the playing field isn't really that strong this year. But as I said on Twitter, this really is the best Hong Kong film of the year. I think along with 29 plus 1 and Mad World, I mean, these, these three films are definitely at the top of the class. Uh, and it's hard to imagine other films to beat those three this year. So see it, see it, see it. Uh, our our day uh, was our time will come. Our time will come is playing in selected theaters, I think, still in the United States. If you have a chance, go see it. It's one, really best Hong Kong film of the year. All right, very good. I'm looking forward to it, especially with the soundtrack by uh, Joe Hisaishi, and uh, sometimes that can make a film. Um, I'm not in this case, obviously, an Anhui film, but I, what did he do? He did the soundtrack for a Chinese Tall Story, right, uh, back in 2005. I mean, that's about the only redeemable thing about that film. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. So I'm looking forward to this. Uh, it's probably not going to come to a cinema near me, so we'll have to wait for video, but very much looking forward to seeing it. 
All right, we'll be back after this break with our West Screen review of Spider-Man Homecoming. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches seeds just like flies. Look out, here comes a Spider-Man. Is he strong? Listen, bud. He's got radioactive blood. Can he swing from a thread? Take a look overhead. Hey there. And welcome back for our West Screen Review this week. We are once again bounding over into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a sort of side shot from that. Um, if you've been following along with some of the things surrounding the, you know, the creation of this, um, what is this, the third reboot of Spider-Man um, you know, since the first reboot with Tobey Maguire. Uh, this is, uh, you know, something of a, a special film for me because I was very happy to see the character come back into the Marvel fold. And I was a little bit uh, trepidatious going into this, not sure, you know, if they were going to handle it well. And I came out of it with a big smile on my face. Um, and before I get into a lot of that, let me just talk a little bit um, about the story. So, in the events following Captain America Civil War, so this was from uh, last year, if you haven't seen that, you probably should go see that, uh, young Peter Parker returns to New York to try and resume his life. His mentor, Tony Stark, leaves him in the care of Happy Hogan, um, Tony Stark's bodyguard, and he advises Peter to keep a low profile. But when a gang of criminals dealing in alien tech surfaces, um, Peter must learn how to use his powers responsibly. So this is a callback to, of course, the sort of the first Avengers film when the Chitari came through and they left all that uh, massive destruction and alien tech scattered throughout uh, New York City. And so it pulls threads from there that, you know, you've got all this alien tech. Who's going to handle it? Are you going to call Mulder and Scully from the X-Files or, or what's going to happen? Marvel has an answer for that. Um, you know, the the... the big question of what happens when Thor and the Hulk break down buildings and aliens land, you know, what happens afterwards? Well, the heroes, they go have shawarma down the street, right? But you got to call somebody in to, to, to clean up. And this was handled in a not very well-known comic book back in the day called Damage Control, which didn't have an extensive run, but it was basically about the people who clean up in the aftermath. And so they actually pulled back from that, and I was very happy to see Damage Control get a little bit of love um, on the <laughs> screen here. I mean, talk about a deep, deep pull. Um, so, yeah, this is a, it's doing a lot of things right in that it's borrowing heavily from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's pulling stuff from comic books. It's pulling stuff from popular culture. And it's not doing a traditional origin story, which we've already kind of seen twice now on the big screen. We didn't need to see it again. And I think they've learned their lesson. So it's a great non-origin origin story because we still have a very young Peter Parker. He's learning about his powers. Um, you know, he we, we don't need to see the spider bite or any of that again. We don't need to see, um, you know, him creating the suit or any of that. They touch on things like that, but they leave enough of it alone for this to feel fairly fresh. Um, I would say that with regard to the origin story, though, there is the absence of Uncle Ben. You do have Marissa Torme here as a very youthful Aunt May, <laughs> and it's she's kind of <laughs> she's kind of played off like a, a milf, for lack of a better word. 
uh, or what would that be? An uh, elf, a, a elf, or an something. Elf. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's you know it's fine, I guess. Uh, she's not the traditional old granny looking Aunt May, but the lack of Uncle Ben here is kind of felt, at least for me, because he is supposed to be such a powerful presence in the life of Peter. And Downey comes in as kind of a stand-in. So you have Robert Downey Jr. coming in to reprise his role, he being on loan from the Marvel Cinematic Use proper as part of the deal. You know, it's like we loan you Spidey and you you loan us uh, Tony Stark slash Iron Man. And it works out pretty well. I was afraid he was going to be dominating the movie too much and he's in it just enough um, for my taste. And so he's kind of this mentorish stand-in, but he's a bit too schmarmy. I mean, Uncle Ben is really supposed to be the very positive male role model figure in in Peter's life. So there is a little bit of a a lack therein. Um, And to have Tony Stark take up that role, it's kind of like, okay, Um, doesn't really feel the same. But it's understandable, especially if you've read the Civil War comic, that kind of mentorship role. They they play that off uh, to some extent here. And Downey's doing his typical sort of downy shtick for the Tony Stark role. The pacing is fun, and while I do think the later trailers that came out really kind of ruined the overall arc, they kind of show the entire arc uh, of, of, you know, what Peter's going to go through, I think that the final act here really still makes it worthwhile, and they kind of throw in a reveal, a twist that um, is predictable, but I really, they hit it well enough that I didn't see it coming when, when it finally dropped in a, in my lap, so... Very, I was very excited with the final act and not the splody, splody stuff. I mean, the action scenes are fine. It's Spider Man. They throw a new tricks, they throw a couple new tricks with like variations on web shooters and, and his suit and everything. And that's all fine. It's fancy, fancy. But what really kind of impressed me were some of the character moments throughout the film. And I could have seen a lot more of those um, going forward. So, really good chemistry uh, amongst the cast. The Fun little refresh that they do right at the start of the Civil War airport battle scene done from Peter's perspective was really nice. And, uh, you know, kind of enjoyed that a little bit of a sort of, you know, selfie style version of that, which was fun. Um, But the main thing that I really kind of gelled with here was Keaton as the Vulture. The Vulture as a Spider-Man character, he was one of the earliest Spider-Man villains, but he's not really one of the most popular He's kind of kind of a deep pull. The original was kind of this old bald man, you know, costume with wings and feathers, kind of like the Falcon, and he, he, just not somebody you would go to, you know, with a Spider-Man villain today necessarily. So they tweak him a little bit. Um, they make him sort of this cleanup crew guy, and who gets kind of sucked in because of circumstances to basically just picking over tech, you know as a vulture would. Um, so I really like that kind of interpretation of the character. In terms of what he does, you know, he basically relies on tech. He's very much like the Sam Wilson Falcon character, the way they kind of reinvented him as a superhero. And they, you know, I think they did a good job. I mean, you know, he's he's very much along the same lines as, as a Sam Wilson, basically a character who relies solely on the tech and has motivations of his own. And and so that's all good. His motivation here for villainy is very grounded. He's not, you know, he's not just a villain for a villain's sake. He's not like a Thanos or anything like that. And for me, that makes him much more approachable and relatable as a sort of Spider-Man villain. I think it works very well. 
there's a scene in the final act uh, where he just really kills it. I mean, it's a scene that happens between him and Tom Holland, and it's really the one of the best moments of the film for me, if not the best. Um, and, you know, that's it's just really good writing, really good filmmaking at that point. The interesting thing to think about, too, I think, with Keaton in this role is his progression over the years from superhero in the Batman role to uh, the, the kind of reversal of fortune take on that in Birdman and now sort of in this mode as, um, you know, a villain Birdman in the character of the Vulture. So from hero to villain through this, you know, lens of comic book characterization, um, it's, it's a very interesting ride uh, that he's had to this point. With Tom Holland as Peter, initially I was worried that he'd be too young. I know that when they first announced this, I was thinking, ah, they're really going to go younger with all the characters. But um, the way he comes off on screen, when I saw him in Civil War, I was a bit more confident. And here I think he really knocks it out of the park. He captures this idea of a young but brilliant kid, you know, high schooler, which is kind of what Peter was when the comic first launched. So the kids here kind of feel appropriate they feel like high schoolers it doesn't feel like you know beverly hills 90210 with 20 somethings playing high schoolers or something it they all they all feel the right age they all feel like they have a sense of chemistry together so he really knocks it out of the park he's the right level of sort of teenage dweeb and superhero cool that i think toby mcguire's character didn't quite have and andrew garfield had a little bit of it but he was still not enough teenage dweeb um, for my taste. He was still a bit um, too much superhero cool. So I think he's got a really good mix of that here, and it works well for the representation of Peter. And they have to do some changes here, because the original, you know, back when Spider-Man was first going out, the dynamic was that if you were a science nerd, that was not cool, right? You were picked on because of that, and you were supposed to be athletic and physical and a jock, and thus you have characters like Flash Thompson. And now they've kind of recognized the fact that, you know, it's cool to be a science nerd. So what do you do when you have a kid who's a science nerd? Well, you have other science nerds who pick on him for different reasons uh, as a result. So, you know, you still have this aspect of him being an awkward teenager and seen as a dweeb in some ways by other kids who are science nerds themselves um, and him having to kind of, you know, hold his own on that social ladder. And so we get into this, you know, it's much more, it's almost like a breakfast club style thing um, that they throw in here, you know, the sort of homecoming aspect of Spider-Man, which you don't really get in the other superhero films, which I think is a, is a nice change. So that, as I said, there's lots of great fan, fan service from things like Damage Control. The Spidey theme that they use right at the opening is a variation of the, you know, um, old Spider-Man cartoon theme. Um there are connections, again, across the Marvel Cinematic Universe, lots of Easter eggs to pick up on, um, things that touch on both stuff cinematically and other stuff from, from the comic books. There's an excellent cameo by Donald Glover from Community, which, if you know the character he's playing, points to a great many things, and it's a very... It's a very nice moment for them to pull him in. They could have put anybody in the role, but it's a nod to some of the casting controversy that was going on a few years ago when they were thinking about, you know, why do they have to cast another white actor as a Peter Parker? So if you're familiar with that, it's really nice to kind of see him here and 
and see the character, you know, who he's playing, if you're familiar with uh, a lot of that. Uh, really, though, for me, I think amongst the kids, Jacob uh, Batalon as Ned really steals much of the show. He's a uh, young, kind of new actor, Hawaiian, Filipino by descent, and uh, he's great. I could have just watched mo- tons of more scenes with him. Uh, they play to him for the comic relief, but not in sort of the traditional sense. And it, he's just a fun, fun character, and I look forward to seeing a lot more of him in future Spider-Man shows. The Aunt May, as I said, a bit too young, but also fun, uh, especially her final moment in the film, which I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, and Iron Man, here you have a good amount of Robert Downey, uh, but not too much. And I, it was nice to see sort of Happy Hogan come in and do a bit of the heavy lifting in, as, as sort of the liaison. Um, and he's funny in the stuff that he has to do. I really hope that this prompts the other studios to look back at other Marvel franchises that they hold the rights to and that they can, um, that they can uh, work out a deal. You know, that they can maybe think about getting some of these properties back over to be a part of the bigger, you know, Marvel franchise, Marvel Cinematic Universe. And hopefully that, you know, this will bring some of those characters back into the fold and they can do bigger and bigger things with them. Um, they, they do touch on it. So if you're familiar with the fallout of the last Marvel movie, the Civil War movie, they have this thing called the Sokovia War Accords which is basically the Superhero Registration Act um, from the Civil War comics. They touch on it here, but I'm not, they don't really get into how this applies to Peter, uh, you know, especially to kids who are, you know, not of legal age, I guess. And so it's really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really unclear as to what, how, you know, with, with, with Spider-Man here, what is he operating as? Is he, st- is he considered illegal? They kind of lead up to a moment as a as a kind of reveal towards the end, which is uh, a big moment that they had in the comic books, and then they kind of uh, pull back from that a little bit. So um, some questions do abound, and it's definitely territory that, that they can explore further once they get beyond, I guess, the stuff to come, which I guess the next time we'll see Spider-Man is going to be in the first Infinity War film. Um, music is good, but uh, I did have a question. Are the kids today really listening to Flock of Seagulls and uh, English Beat? Because that's what I listened to when I when they were doing my homecoming. <laughs> Has the music really come around since then, or were these just my generation of guys uh, plotting out the music for this film? Which it was fine for me, but I'm, I was really questioning that. You know, as I as I see the the montage of Peter getting ready for the dance and him, uh, you know, getting ready to go to the homecoming dance. So. Um, that was fun. Uh, one mid credit scene and one end credit scene here. Um, nothing to really get worked up about. Nothing that kind of points to the bigger expansion of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, per se. The mid credit scene does deal with um, uh, more of the Spider-Man rogues gallery, and it's fun for Spider-Man fans. The end credit scene is funny, but it's kind of a throwaway thing. Um, but it's worth waiting for just to watch it. The best moment, though... Of, of that is actually the very final scene, the final couple of seconds of the <laughs> film itself, which I, you know, they could have used that as the end credit scene. And I think it would have been absolutely fabulous. So it's, it's a really good film. I think for me, it's the best Spider-Man film since the Tobey Maguire one, Spider-Man two. And I might like this one even a little more. Cause I like, I like the kids here. I, I a lot of people said it, you know, it's a, 
the story itself is a bit, you know, a, a little bit been there, done that kind of thing. But I really liked seeing the development of Peter Parker here more than anything, more than, you know, just the Spider-Man stuff. Because we've kind of seen the Spider-Man stuff done before. So um, I'm excited to see Tom Holland take this and, and run with it. And hopefully they'll do more with him while he's young, you know, before he sort of ages out of the role. Um, so I look forward to more. So, Kevin, you've seen uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. What is your thought did. on all of this? Well, I, I, I like this uh, reboot. It's uh, it's it's very good. I, get, I don't know about you, but I was very thankful there was no Uncle Ben. I mean, I think it's sort of, uh, they did allude to it. They were talking about how much Aunt May has been going through, but they never actually tell you what Aunt May has been going through. So it kind of leaves everything to the imagination. But thank God there is no Uncle Ben anymore here. Um, cause if I had to watch uncle Ben die again, like he's just like the poor, like the, one of the most pitiful characters I think ever in the history of carbon movies, he only exists to die, which is quite sad. So I'm, I'm very, I'm very, well, uh, him, glad him, him and him and uh, Batman's parents, right? No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And how many times have we seen Batman's parents? Okay. Well, I think we've seen Batman's parents die more than uncle Ben died. That is true. Okay. Um, so I was glad it's, it's a, like you said, it's origin film, but not really origin film. I like that they took the best of Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because they use Civil War to lay out any kind of origin story. So then we save that first 45 minutes where, you know, we don't have to see how he discovers his power anymore. Uh, and just go right into the story. I'm really happy about that. And I like that it goes against the previous two versions of the Spider-Man films. I mean, the Spider-Man films are always um, so much about more power, you know, with more power comes more responsibility. And this time, not really support, but you know, they don't really do, they, they kind of go against that. And I really like that approach to a film. Um, uh, Tom Holland is good. Uh, Aunt May is awesome. I love that they, they, they actually recognize, they actually recognize that they have casted a MILF here because there are multiple moments where they actually allude to that. Again, they, they actually, you know, play up with that play, you know, they're quite tongue in cheek about that. Um, Michael, Michael Keaton, like you said, awesome. Just great, great villain. Um, and the third act uh, uh, is great. Um, I think it's one of the better villains of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because he's so down to everyone, because you actually know his motivation. Um, and he actually is a, he's a credible, he is a credible character. Uh, he is a credible villain. Um, no more Hydra than God. I mean, Hydra is so grown, so, so unbelievably big that it's hard to kind of feel the, the, the real villainy esque of it all anymore. So it's good to see a, a more grounded villain, uh, in this film. I thought it's a bit too lightweight. I still think Spider-Man 2, the Tobey Maguire one, is better. Um, also, this film is missing the um, the central relationship. You know, there, the, 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 there's such a such a thing called a Spider-Man. I think there's a new new thing called a Spider-Man pattern, I guess. A Spider-Man curse, I suppose. That the two stars, the two leads, are, are going to end up dating. So, so uh, Tobey Maguire ended up dating Kirsten Dunst. Um, Andrew Garfield ended up dating Emma Stone. And now Tom Holland is dating Zendaya. So it's, it's kind of interesting. But the thing is, at least you could see how that chemistry, the chemistry between those two leads and the first two versions of Spider-Man really worked. That you could see why there's a romantic pair in there because they have so much chemistry. Tommy McGuire and Kirsten Dunst are great together. Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield, I thought, were the best thing about that. Those two Spider-Man films, everything else, totally forgettable. But it was always great to watch them together. Here, I didn't didn't feel that because I don't think I think Tom Holland is too 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 um, 
too uh, what's the word baby faced or his too young. I mean, he's like twenty years old, right? But I mean, he's still sort of too childish to have that kind of serious romantic chemistry with a co-star, and 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 there is a certain review that you're waiting for anyway. So then you just kind of keep waiting. I was I kept waiting for it to come. So I didn't buy that romance in the film at all. Um, so I didn't feel there was that romantic chemistry there between him and and uh, uh, I'm sorry I forget the name of the uh, actress. Liz, who played Laura, Steve, Laura Liz, Harrier. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Um, so that was a bit lacking. Um, and the suit. And I talked about this with a friend. I think the suit this time is too high tech. Um, the suits always, you know, the the sort of uh, the homemade quality of the Spider-Man suit has always been sort of like the, the, the cool quality because Spider-Man is really about his ability. But, you know, you have this whole, you know, Iron Man, Tony Stark thing coming in and, and making computerizing the, the suit. I think it's a bit too much. Um, and now it seems like a lot of times Spider-Man is relying on computer and technology um, and whatever. Um, so there's too much of that, a little bit too much of that. Also, I did not find the best friend character funny. Honestly, I found him incredibly annoying at just how immature and how, how, I mean, yes, he's a high school student, so he is supposed to act immature, but I think sometimes he almost, they almost make him intentionally derail certain things as the comic relief, and that really didn't make him a very likable character until he sort of steps up later on in the film. But first half, I thought he was incredibly annoying, and I hope that they would, I hope they tone it back down a little bit in the next installment. Action, I didn't think much of the action. It was okay. I still prefer the way Sam Raimi shoots the the, the Spider-Man flying sequences because he actually swung, most of the time he actually swung a camera. If you remember the first film, a lot of times he actually swung a camera from above down to street level and then back up. I mean, that was that most, most of that stuff wasn't CGI. That was real in-camera flying. And I don't remember seeing any of that in this film. A lot of that was CGI stuff or ground level shooting, ground level. Um, so I preferred the old Sam Raimi style of shooting, the, at least the earlier films uh, of how he shot Spider-Man's uh, motions and the actions. Um, but otherwise, I have fun with it. I think it's a good entry to the MCU. And, and I'm glad that the Sony, you know, Sony came to their senses and handed it back over to people who knew what they're doing and, and made um, John Watts sort of adhere back to MCU rules. And it's going to be interesting to see how he how Spider-Man uh um, continues to play a role in the MCU, and um, well, I guess we don't have to, we don't have to wait much much longer. Apparently, he is going to have a reduced role in Infinity War, much like uh, Civil War. So we're not going to see much of Spider Man until the sequel coming two years later. So uh, I look forward to that more than more than his role in Avengers. listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit kongcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you'd like to be part of the show, please get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. You can find us on Twitter, twitter.com at concast. You can email us eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can find us on Facebook at East S. 
West S. As always, I urge you to follow on with Kevin and all that he is doing. Uh, where can they find out more about you, sir? Um, well, okay. Uh, I've been very busy, so I am going to try and keep updating Asia and cinema um, as much as I can. Uh, but yes, I have a new site, and it's called asiaincinema.com. That's asiaincinema.com. I promise I will try and get back to regular updating um, within the next week or so or next couple of days. Um, I am also... you can. Follow our Facebook page uh, or Twitter to search Asia in Cinema. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. You can uh, read my work on Cathay Pacific's Discovery Magazine um, or Cathay Dragon Silk Road Magazine. You can also read some of our online content um, in uh, on the Discovery website. That's uh, CathayPacific.com slash Discovery. You can also email me at Kevin at AsiaInCinema.com. Excellent. On our next show, episode 234, what do we need to talk about for e-screen, sir? Can we talk about Dunkirk? Or do we want to do Planet of the Apes? Depends. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to do Planet of the Apes. Uh, that's what I've seen recently. Um... Because I am amazingly excited for Dunkirk. In fact, um, the movie event of the year is arriving tomorrow, Paul. Guess what that film is? It's not directed by Christopher Nolan. Uh, what is that? Mao? Meow? Louis Koo alien cat movie, baby. That's right. I'm so jealous. Yeah. I am so freaking jealous. And I, I am, I am drop-dead serious when I say that. I really, really, really want to see this movie. Probably as much as I want to see the Anhui movie. And I, I can't wait to hate this movie. That's how much I can't wait to see this movie. This is, and I, I reiterate, there. this will be the end of Hong Kong cinema as we know it. There will only be before Mao and after Mao. Enhui's <laughs> Our Time Will Come, it will be the last, last greatness of cinema in the before Mao era. You know, why, why, are, why are they bothering to, to leak films like um, Wukong? online why not leak this because i want to see this no one wants to watch it for free paul (laughs) i do i'll pay to watch it just show it here put it in a cinema and i'll be they are showing it in the states they are showing the states unfortunately just not in west palm beach (laughs) so yeah all right well we'll have something all of that and more on our next show until then this is the east screen west screen podcast saying we wish you good viewing whatever you're watching and we'll see you next time Wish me luck, everybody. I'm about to go to the Alien Cat movie. What was the link you posted this morning? Because it didn't come through. I don't know if it was blocked internationally or got pulled. Oh no! I think it's only uh, it's only available in Hong Kong because it's actually a uh, it's a sweepstake um, <laughs> for a chance to ride in a helicopter piloted by Michael Wong. <laughs> oh, sweet! <laughs> for six people, the airways of love. Exactly. That's actually they try to sell it as an airways of love experience. Let me read you the. Um, let me read you the photo. <laughs> Hilarious. Yes, yeah, it's just take.
take a helicopter ride with actor Michael Wong and discover the airways of love. Nice. It's freaking fantastic. I don't think it's news, but we could mention it if you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll t- I'll, maybe I'll throw that in the end as a little bit of errata. It's funny. I know that he was selling package. There's there's he he like you can buy a package tour to fly with him, and uh, it's it's pretty hefty price tag from what I remember. But I mean, it's not. It's not uh, like out of this world. If you were really, like, really like a super fan, I'm sure you could do it. I have a I have a coworker who actually made the news a couple of weeks ago because uh, he was hiking and had a heat stroke, and he needed uh, a helicopter to save him uh, here in Hong Kong. And and he says I would rather get picked up after a heat stroke in the mountains than ride in a helicopter, with Michael Wong. <laughs> I thought it was going to be that Michael Wong swooped in and saved him. That would have been a that would have been a story, right? 